Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. Well, last week we started a two-part series now on the life of Queen Esther, so I'm glad you've come back for this second portion. Okay, I want you to turn to Esther chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now this is like a big suite. He has all of his rooms. He's sitting on his royal throne. And in verse 2, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I'm going to prepare for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Okay, the king knew immediately now that something was troubling Esther and he's willing to give her up to half of his kingdom. Now, that's quite an offer. When you think about the fact that he's thrown Vasti out, evidently he's never given her anything like that. And so up to half of his kingdom So he's very happy with Esther, and he just wants to know what's troubling her. He wants to know what kind of problem she's having. Now, this is not a man of God, so he doesn't know any way to fix the problem except to give her something materialistic. He's going to offer her something in the natural because that's all he knows to do. But you know what? That's a good picture of the world because that's all the world knows to offer, just something worldly when it's trying to fix things. So Esther's first request is for the king and for Haman now to come to the banquet that she's giving. Now, if you'll notice, this banquet is already prepared because she wants him to come and immediately he sends for Haman. And he said, come now. She's operated in faith. She's believed when she went before the king that she was going to be spared. She's believed that to the point that she has the banquet prepared and the king wants to please her so badly that he says, let's go. We're going to go immediately. Now, we don't know whether or not she was trying to get up her nerve. Maybe she had a banquet because she was a little nervous about going right in and telling the king that she's Jewish and that her people are about to be annihilated. But it was a good move on her part to have Haman invited. We're going to find that later. And so they go, they enjoy the banquet, and Haman, of course, now, he feels so honored that he's been included. I tell you what, he just thinks that he is pretty hot stuff, that he's been able to have this private banquet with the king and queen. But the king realizes that something is wrong with Esther. He knows that. And so he said, tell me, what is it that I can do to please you? And so in chapter 5, verse 8, she said, if I have found favor in your sight, then I would just like to ask you to come again to a banquet tomorrow. And in verse 9, Haman leaves out, and he is so excited, and he is so pumped up, the Bible says he was pleased of heart. In other words, he was just full of excitement and pride over the fact that he's been invited two days in a row to eat with the king and queen. Now, you can imagine how prideful he was feeling. When all the kingdom, he is the only one that has been included in this private dinner party. You can see why he felt on top of the world. But you know what? When he comes out, the first person that he sees is Mordecai. 
And when he sees Mordecai, all of his joy just goes out the window because Mordecai is not about to bow to him. And he's just furious that Mordecai is refusing this commandment that he bowed down to him. And so he's just ready to explode with anger and bitterness. And he has forgotten already how happy he was just five minutes ago. And that's what bitterness does to a person. Any time that we're all excited, if we let bitterness in and that bitterness grows, we're going to find that any little thing is going to cause our joy to go out the window. See, when a person walks in the flesh, then all the pleasures of this world, they're just meaningless because the next pleasure has to be just a little bit bigger than the last one for us to be content. And anything that goes wrong along the way, well, all the temporary pleasure that we've been enjoying, it's just gone. Our joy is gone. How many times do you see someone in the world, or maybe it's even a Christian at times, but if someone is in the flesh, things can be going beautifully, and they can be having the best time in the world, but if they're in the flesh, if one little thing goes wrong, then suddenly they forget all the good things that's been happening, and they're just ready to throw in the towel, and they think it's the worst day they've ever had. And that's exactly what has happened to Haman. And he's so upset, goes home, and in verse 10, he calls all of his friends and he calls his wife together. And then in verse 11, this one just blows me away because don't you know his friends could have just passed out. First, he begins to tell them all of the glories of his riches. He starts telling them how rich he is and how famous he is and how much he's been honored and how much he's been glorified by the king. And he just brags and brags to all these friends. And then he begins to tell them how many sons he has. Now, I'm sure he didn't just give them the number of sons because it's so typical of parents that we brag on our children. And so I'm sure as he named how many sons he had, I'm sure he told something wonderful about each one of them. And they had to sit there and listen to each little thing that all of his sons had done that made him feel so proud. And then he tells how he's been promoted then above everyone else in the kingdom. And they all have to sit there and they have to listen through all of that. And then in verse 12, he tells how he is the only one that Queen Esther has invited to the banquet, a banquet to honor the king and to honor him. But in verse 13 now, he opens his heart to these friends and he said, yet in all of this, it doesn't satisfy me. And the reason is because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. When he walked outside, he couldn't get Mordecai to get down on his knees and pay homage to him. And so he says there's no satisfaction in all these good things. See, for the one that's not trusting in God, first of all, that one has to pat himself on the back and that one has to promote himself because ego's always going to be present. But even in the ego trip, there's no satisfaction and life is totally meaningless apart from God. And so all of these friends and all these people that he's had come into his home and his wife, they come up with a plan. They tell him, you know, if Mordecai is giving you this much trouble, you're second to the king. So you shouldn't have to put up with this. And so if he's going to refuse to bow to you, to one that's promoted to this great honor, then why don't you just get rid of him? And so they come up with the idea that he builds gallows so that he can have him hanged on the gallows. He said, you might as well get it over with. You know, he's going to die in 11 months anyway, but why wait for 11 months? Go ahead and build the gallows and hang him on the gallows and, you know, let the people see what happens when they don't obey the edicts that go out from the king. And, oh, you can imagine that this advice really pleased Haman greatly. And I'm going to show you later that he immediately started having those gallows built. 
you would have thought that maybe he would have waited a little while. But I'm going to show you later that that very day he went out and started having the gallows built. Now, I can imagine when all of this came to Mordecai's and Esther's attention, I can imagine that that was quite a blow. Definitely things have been going from bad to worse because they've just recently gotten the news that all of the Jews are going to be annihilated. And, of course, they're still reeling from that information. And now, for Esther to find out that Mordecai is going to be hanged immediately, you can imagine what she's thinking. Because, see, up until now, Mordecai has been able to sit there at the king's gate, and they could send messages back and forth, and he was her advisor. And she would send out, and she'd say, this is happening, what do I do? And he would immediately hear from God and then would tell her what to do. And now she realizes... Mordecai is going to be hanged and she's going to have to face the annihilation of her people and possibly the annihilation of herself in 11 months and she's going to have to face it alone. But this is when we have to put out faith. I tell you what, we are going to face some things in our lifetime that appears to be the end of the world and we can either give up and fall on our face and just throw in the towel or we can say, Father, that is not what your word says. That does not line up with your word. And I am not going to receive that. I am going to believe your word more than I believe what I'm seeing. And God was expecting trust out of these people. Now, I thank God that I live on this side of the cross. Because on this side of the cross, it is so much easier to have trust than it would have been then. But they had to trust God. They had to believe that God was working behind the scenes. And he was. He had a plan in mind. And he always works things out in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. But you know what? That's where trust comes in, when we can't possibly imagine how he's going to do it. And how many times have you had maybe a financial or a, a physical need come up and you couldn't see a possible way to get out of it? I know that many of you have faced that. Maybe you've had trouble with a child or maybe you've had trouble in a marriage. And you looked at the situation and you said, Lord, I can't imagine how you're going to do it. And your mind went into overtime when you started trying to think of ways that maybe it could be worked out. And you know what? It's amazing that God never works something out the way I figured it out in my mind. He never does it that way. And so I've gotten to the point where I don't want to think of anything because I think, okay, that eliminates it. God will never do it that way now. But he works in ways that we could never think of in a thousand years. And usually his answers are so simple. In fact, there's been times when I think, oh, Lord, I can't believe I didn't think of that. That is so simple, and it works so perfectly. But that's exactly what God did here. And so we find in chapter 6, verse 1, that it was during the night that the king couldn't sleep. And he's restless. And so he calls for his servants, and he tells them he wants them to come in and read the chronicles to him. And I thought about that, and I thought there's been a lot of nights when I couldn't sleep. But the last thing in the world I would have wanted was to <laughs> have all my business read to me. But that's exactly what God intended. And God had him in a restless mood, and God impressed him to want to hear now the court records. And so we find in verse 2 that they're reading along, and suddenly they come to the place where it's recorded how Mordecai heard the plot against the king's life and sent word to the king and saved his life. Of course, we talked about that story last week. But suddenly, when King Ahasuerus hears this, in verse 3, he said, Oh my goodness, was anything done for this man that saved my life? Was he glorified in any way? Was anything done for Mordecai? Did we leave him unrewarded? And of course, his servants had to say, you know, not a thing was done for him. 
You'll remember, instead of something being done for Mordecai, Haman was exalted. And so we have to realize that our rewards are going to come. They may not come exactly when we expect them, but they're going to come exactly when God intends them to if we'll trust him. And they'll come at the perfect right moment. Anytime we're operating in the laws of God, we can be assured now that God is going to exalt us and bless us in due time. But it's going to be in God's timing. And that's exactly what happened here. And you can see the wisdom of God because if the king had rewarded Mordecai back when it first happened, when he first discovered the plot, now when Mordecai needed a favor, the king wouldn't have even thought about it. But see, right now, this was the moment in history when the situation was desperate. And this was the moment in history when a favor was crucial. And God knew it. And that's when he brought it about in the fullness of time. And so the king spends the rest of the night now. He's thinking about it. He's thought about it all night. And the next morning in verse 6, we find that Haman comes into the palace. We know he had to have been out taking care of having those gallows built because he only had a two-day period in which they were built. And so he comes into the palace and the king calls him in and he said, Haman, what should I do for the man that I wish to honor? Well, immediately Haman starts reasoning and he thinks, now who would the king want to honor more than he would want to honor me? After all, I'm the only one that got invited to the banquet. So of course, he's talking about me and he's trying to find out what would please me the most. And so you can just see him just puffing up in pride. And I thought the Lord definitely has a sense of humor. He definitely knows how to bring vindication to us when we need it. And when we read the reward, that Haman asked for, it tells us a great deal about Haman. It tells us exactly what was going on on the inside of him. And so in chapter 6, verse 8, Haman immediately tells the king, he doesn't even have to think about it. He tells the king, put the man on a horse that you've ridden, put clothes on the man that you've worn. In other words, don't give him any new clothes. Give him clothes that you've had on you and put a crown on his head and let someone lead this horse through the city and let the man be hollering as he leads the horse. This is the man that the king wishes to honor. I tell you what, when you read that, that tells you exactly what was going to appeal to Haman. He is ego personified. And he can just picture himself riding on this horse, feeling so grand and so important with all the people of the city looking at him. And he's all the time that he's riding on the horse, he's going to be telling himself, the king had these clothes on. I'm wearing clothes that the king has had on. And I thought, big deal. <laughs> you think about that. But his pride now was just flying all over the place. And so the king was pleased with the idea. That even appealed to the king. He thought, well, this is a good idea. And of course, it appealed to his pride a little bit too because he was a little bit impressed with the fact that Haman thought it would be nice to be wearing clothes that he had worn and riding a horse that he had ridden on. And so he says, thus it shall be done for the man that I choose to honor. And so in chapter 6, verse 10, he very quickly says, get the robes, get the horse, get the crown. Don't leave anything out. Do exactly as you've spoken and do it to Mordecai the Jew. Oh my goodness. Can't you just imagine the shock? It's a wonder he didn't fall in the floor and they have to resuscitate him. And so Haman goes out. I'm sure he's just in a state of shock when he goes out to be obedient to the king. And I love verse 12 because verse 12 says that when they get back to the king's gate, doesn't tell us anything about the ride, but when they get back to the king's gate, it says that Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. 
And I loved that. I thought I could just picture him. He finally gets it over with and he just pulls his coat up over his head as he heads home. And I can also see him leading that horse around the city with his arch enemy on the back and hollering, this is the man that the king wants to honor. But you know what? I bet he didn't holler that very loudly. I'm sure that he pretended a sore throat and I'm sure that it wasn't much over a whisper. But he's hoping, I'm sure, every step of the way that none of his friends are out there, that no one sees them. Now, not only is he not the man on the horse, but Horab Horash, he's the man who's having to pull that horse and utter the proclamation. And I thought only God could bring about that kind of a vindication. And God has an uncanny way of turning the tables on the enemy. And he's the one that has to do it, though. Too many times we try to vindicate ourselves. And when we try to vindicate ourselves, it never works. It always falls to the floor. When God vindicates us, there's always a sweet vindication. And in chapter 6, verse 13, he immediately runs home to his wife and to his friends. Now, these evidently are pretty intimate friends because he tells them everything that's happened. And then verse 13 is really sad when you think about it. These worldly friends now literally bring forth a prophecy, a prophetic word to him. And this is pretty shocking because they said, if Mordecai, before whom you have already begun to fall, see, they're already seeing that he's falling. And they said, before whom you have already begun to fall, if he is of Jewish origin, and they knew that he was, they said, you will not be able to overcome him. You will surely fall because of him. Now, wouldn't that be a frightening word to get from your friends when you've gone to them to get comfort and to have them say that? I'm sure, though, he doesn't have a lot of time to think about it because as soon as he gets home, they're already waiting for him to take him to the second banquet. And so in chapter 7, verse 2, he goes a second time to the banquet of Queen Esther with the king. Now, he's probably not quite as happy going this time as he was the day before. But this time now, the king is persistent with the queen, and he wants to know what's troubling her, and so he just persists in that. And he said, what is it that you're wanting? You know, what are you lacking? I want to do anything that it takes to make you happy. And in verse 3 of chapter 7, she said, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let my life be given to me as my petition and the life of my people. Don't you know when he's hearing that, that, that shock is going through that king? She says, this is my request. For she said, we have been sowed, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Wow. You can just imagine that the king was just horrified. And so in verse 5, he said, who is he and where is he who would presume to do such a thing? Who on earth? See, he's already temporarily forgotten about the law that he made. I tell you what, when God avenges us, you know, we've been vindicated. And so Esther then, you can see the wisdom in having Haman there because he's right there in the room and she's able to point to him and she said, this is the enemy. This is the man who has done this. And the king is so angry and he's so filled with mixed emotions that he just takes out of the house. Now, he's trusted Haman. He's made Haman really almost second in command. And he's next in importance. So I can imagine what he's thinking there. He's just finding out that his queen is Jewish. He realizes the law that he himself has put into being. And he knows that he can't revoke that law. He knows that. He also knows that he's been deceived and he's been tricked by the man who was closest to him. And so he takes out in the garden in anger, in frustration, I'm sure with all these mixed emotions. And of course, when he leaves, 
Haman does exactly what I would have done. He just falls across Esther's couch and he's begging for mercy. Well, I think this is time. I think I would have been begging for mercy at this point. But the king turns around, comes back in at just the wrong moment or just the right moment, according to which side you're on, you know. And in chapter 7, verse 8, he sees Haman falling across the couch and insult upon insult, he assumes now that Haman is trying to assault his queen. And so Haman can't win for losing at this point. And you think, you know, what more could go wrong? And so the attendants now, they realize that Haman's in great trouble. And the last part of verse 8, you need to mark that because you can't read it without laughing. But they reach over and they cover Haman's head. <laughs> and I thought, what do you do when somebody dies? You know, you pull the sheet up over their head. Well, I'm sure that they figure that he's just as good as dead. And so they cover his head. Then all of a sudden, Harbona. Now, this is probably Esther's personal attendant. This is the eunuch that takes care of her. He's probably the one that prepared the feast for her. And I'm sure he's the one that has stood there and has watched her cry over and over when she found out that her people were going to be annihilated. And so I'm sure he's come to love her and come to want to protect her with his life. And so he is the one now that makes the suggestion to the king. He said, well, Haman has built some gallows out there to hang Mordecai. Why don't you just use the gallows that he's prepared and hang Haman? I thought, you know, don't you know that Haman, his whole life is reeling before him as he sees all this happening. He was serious about destroying Mordecai because he had only had that suggestion made to him after the first banquet. He's only had one day, a 24-hour period, and notice those gallows are already built. So he was very serious about getting rid of Mordecai, but now the whole thing is turned against him. And in chapter 7, verse 10, it says that they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Now, our enemies will trap themselves when someone continues to keep putting evil out. That evil will eventually turn and fall on their head. We see that all through the book of Proverbs where it says that the pit that a man digs, he'll fall into his own pit in time if he doesn't repent. And when someone continues to put out that evil, then he enters into a law of sowing and reaping. And if he doesn't repent, now it's not God that's sending the evil. And Haman just kept perpetuating his own evil, his own anger and his own bitterness and jealousy and pride. And finally, it literally obsessed him. But you know, in Romans 8, 28, I love that scripture because it tells us that as we pray in the spirit and as we seek the Lord, that it tells us that the things that come to us will work together for good. All of it will work together for good for those that love him and called according to his purposes. And that certainly born out in Esther and Mordecai's life. But Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people, they're still going to have to continue to trust God because there's still a law to contend with. And it's a law that cannot be revoked. And we find in chapter 8, verse 2, that the king takes his signet ring off of Haman. Now, we find it was in chapter 7, verse 10, that they hanged Haman. And down in 8, verse 2, he takes the ring. So it almost is like an afterthought. You know, Haman has been hanged, and he goes out and he gets that signet ring, and he gives it to Esther and Mordecai. And that's like a power of attorney. It's like the king's signature. And he gives it to them to be able to do whatever they need to do to save themselves and to save their people. And that's a type and shadow of what God does with our enemy. 
because God literally took the power away from the enemy and he gave us his power of attorney. He gave us the authority over the enemy. That's a picture of it right here with Mordecai and Esther. Now, like I said, we find then in chapter 9, verse 2, that the law still has to be contended with. It's already gone out, and there's a lot of people in the land who hate the Jews. So they're waiting for this day. They're excited about the fact that they're going to be able to fight these Jews and that they're going to be able to annihilate them. And so Esther and Mordecai, now they suggest to the king that they at least be able to be given permission to fight back to fight for themselves. And so the king then decrees another law, sends out an edict throughout the land saying that on the 11th month, the Jews will in fact fight to protect themselves. Then we find in chapter nine, verse two, that the Jews assemble themselves together and it said no one could stand before them because the dread of them had fallen on all of the people. And so it worked out beautifully. It worked out so that the people were afraid of them and they were protected that day. Now the Bible tells us that one of the blessings in Deuteronomy 28 is that people will know we're called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of us. And sometimes we don't think of that as being a blessing, but it is. That's listed in the blessings. Deuteronomy 28, that people will know we're called by the name of the Lord and they'll be afraid of us. They'll respect us. So we're going to find that this is just as true today as it was back in that day and time. And in chapter 9, then verse 4, it says that Mordecai was great in the king's house. I tell you what, promotion day came. And it says that his fame now spread throughout all the providences. His fame went everywhere. And it says the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Now Haman tried to exalt himself and he failed. But what does the Bible tell us? It tells us that pride cometh before the fall. But Haman, he was filled with pride. He continued in that pride. It literally consumed him. And then we have then, on the other hand, we have Mordecai who stood back and trusted God and God exalted him in due season. And so in chapter 9, verse 22, it said the sorrow of the Jewish people turned into gladness. And that's what God promises us, that if we trust him, that our sorrow, you know, and our mourning will just turn into joy and excitement. And it says that their mourning turned into a holiday. It turned into a feast day. And that's where they came up with the Feast of Purim. This is not a religious holiday, but this is simply just a holiday celebrating their right to live, their right to exist. And that's exactly what God tells us, that as we trust in the Lord, we're not going to be disappointed. And that's what happened. Mordecai and Esther led their people to trust in God and they weren't disappointed. Now when things overtake us and anytime something tries to get us into fear and pull us into disappointment then, God says that's the time we've got to stand like we've never stood before and say, no, I resist this temptation to be disappointed. I resist these feelings of disappointment. I choose to trust you, Lord, and the time will come that I'll not be disappointed. And I can promise you that time will come if you'll trust God. The time will come that you'll be able to look back and say, Lord, it really worked. That looked so big and it looked so impossible. But Lord, the time did come that truly I was not disappointed. There always comes the time when we're trusting God that our sorrow turns into gladness and our mourning literally will turn into a holiday. And you've seen it happen. If I gave you time, every one of you could give testimony of how you've had times when you've trusted God and you've stood in faith in face of impossible-looking situations. And yet when you cried out, 
God says that when we call upon him, he will answer. Now, sometimes we call upon him and we think, Lord, where are you? It almost seems like he's not there and he's not hearing us, but he is. When we're calling on him in faith, he's hearing us. And just like he didn't exalt Mordecai right away, but at the perfect timing, in the fullness of time. And that's when we have to trust God and we have to say, Lord, in the fullness of your timing, I'm trusting you and I know that you're working these things out and I won't be disappointed. Now in chapter 9, verse 24, it says, Haman, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, which is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. That evil was not coming from the king. It was Haman's own evil. But it returned not only on his own head, but on the heads of his sons. And you know, we could teach a whole Bible study right here, literally, about how we not only choose our own destiny, but we choose the destiny of our children many times. I've had so many people say, well, I'm going to let my children get old, and when they get old, they can make their own choice whether or not they want to go with God. You know what? That is not biblical. And God says that we are to choose. Just like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve God. And if we don't choose, if we do nothing, then we've chosen negatively by default. And many times, children go through a lot of hard circumstances just simply because their parents didn't make the choice that God had laid out before them. Now, the only thing that God gives us to do is to trust God unconditionally and then just to simply obey Him and refuse to go by circumstances, looking to God now as our Jehovah Jireh. Now, the nation in which these Jews found themselves, it was an evil nation. There was nothing godly about the Persian nation at that time. But instead of giving up in despair, they could have given up, they could have thrown their hands up, but instead of giving up in despair, they had some leaders, Esther and especially Mordecai, who made the difference. And I just want to read chapter 10, verse 1 through 3. It says, Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not all written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of the Medes and the Persians? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen one who sought the good for his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his entire nation. Okay, the very thing that Haman wanted was given to Mordecai. And another interesting tidbit here, a lot of people wonder why God's name was not mentioned in the book of Esther. But we need to realize this story was pulled out of the chronicles of the Medes and the Persians. And so naturally, they're not going to be talking about God. But you can see God and God's work on every page of this. You can see how he was there with his people, how they were trusting him, and how he was seeing them safely through. Now, God doesn't want his people to be thermometers. He doesn't want us just to read the spiritual climate and just talk about how bad it is. We may have to say, yes, it's bad, but this is the answer. But he doesn't want us just to be a thermometer just to read the climate and talk about how bad it is. He's calling us really to be thermostats to learn how to control the climate control the temperature of our land. And that's exactly what Mordecai did. And when we follow Christ, 
There's going to be some people who are going to hate without cause, and spiritual warfare is going to manifest many times through other people. And it'll be there to try to bring God's people down. And we saw that happen. Certainly that was the spirit behind Hitler. But even though it makes no sense in the natural for people to be against Christianity, the tendency many times is to try to fight our own battles. But if we're patient and if we yield ourselves totally to God, then God has a way to show us the victory every single time, just exactly like he did to his people here in the book of Esther. Now, the persecutions that we go through now, they're not worthy to be compared to what God has planned for us. And I'm not just talking about in heaven. I'm talking about the persecution that we go through is not worthy to be compared to what God has in store for us right here on this earth. He wants us to walk in kingdom living. He wants us to be able to enjoy the benefits that he's provided for us. I get so excited because he's called us to rule and reign. We've been given power and authority over the enemy, and we can make a difference. Now, they had a physical enemy back then. Our enemy today is a spiritual enemy, but we've been given power and authority over all the powers of the enemy. And Luke 10, 19 says, and the enemy will not be able to injure us. And God's waiting for our people to rise up. If Mordecai could do it back in that day and time in a foreign land with ungodly people, how much more we can rise up today when we can meet together and give each other strength and get strength for the Holy Spirit, how much more we're going to be able to accomplish what God's called us out to accomplish. Father, thank you. Thank you for these stories in the Bible, these Old Testament stories that let us see what takes place when someone will stand up and trust you. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.